If you got your Bibles, grab them, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. If you're on a device, uh, you can click on the, the ESV version so you can track with us. We are, we are at the end. This is it. The final sermon of our Ezra and Nehemiah series, which we started at the beginning of the year. And here we are um, at the very end, Nehemiah 13, the very tail end of the series we've been talking about, as the title has said, rebuilding, restoring, renewing. We've seen how God has done that uh, with these Old Testament priests like Ezra and then a, a cupbearer to the king, which was Nehemiah. And he used these two men to bring the children of Israel from captivity from the captivity they experienced in Babylon and Persia back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city, to get the temple rebuilt and to reestablish themselves as the capital of God's people and the center of their worship uh, being brought back into alignment. And that's really what we've learned over the past, uh, well, I guess six to seven months going through this book. And so we're gonna finish up our time here in Nehemiah and see what the Lord has to say to us through this. Some of you are not going to put on sunscreen. You're getting ready to head into that first hot day of summer where you're gonna be at the pool, you're gonna go on vacation, and you're just not gonna put it on. You're just not gonna do it. You somehow think that the sun is just going to forget that you're there, you know, like you do every year, and then you're gonna look like a human tomato for a week after that, you know? Um, we do that in far more serious areas of our lives. Um, We let our guards down. And that's what we're going to see today in Nehemiah 13, is we're going to see a people that have let their guards down and they've compromised. We think in so many areas of our lives, we think God doesn't see, God doesn't care, this is too small. How can this be a thing for him, right? These are just small things. But then we also see that in so many areas, big and small, in our lives, compromise just costs us. Compromise costs us. Years ago, we got, a, we, got a, we got a great deal, in quotes, on someone to come in and do some painting for us. And it was so cheap. I was, I was so happy. I was so happy for how cheap it was. But, a, but after they had done the job, I mean... It was so bad. It looked like we'd hired like our cat to like paint, paint this room for us. So the job, it ended up costing us more because we had to get somebody in who could actually paint. So today we're going we're gonna to see a little bit how in the life of the Israelites, how compromise costs them and then how it costs us in the life of the church. And how, how do we guard? How do we guard against compromising? So as we look back a little bit, On Ezra and Nehemiah, this is what we see. We see how God has literally rebuilt Jerusalem. He has restored, he has renewed his people and his city. In the middle of their captivity, like I said a moment ago, he he uses Ezra, who was a priest at the time. He uses Nehemiah, who was a a cupbearer to the king of, of Persia. And he uses them to bring his people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to reestablish them in the land that he had promised them. By the way, God never went back on any of his promises, right? This wasn't a case of God just saying, hey, I missed that one. Um, It was the Israelites who had rejected God. It was the Israelites who had fallen back into worshiping the foreign gods of the nations around them. And although God was patient 
with them for so many years, so many years. He finally, finally disciplined them for their idol worship by allowing, ironically, an idol-worshiping nation to lead them into captivity. And as we've seen, we've seen the, the highs and the lows of their journey, right? They faced a ton of opposition to the work when they came back and, and Ezra and Nehemiah led them in these building projects and they faced opposition from the, from the regions, the people around them that didn't like them coming in to do that work. And we also saw that eventually God gave them the grace to complete the work, which led to moments of, of feasting and rejoicing, celebration, because God kept their enemies at bay and allowed them to work in a way that could bring them to completion. They also had had moments of confession and repentance. They were, they were brought back into looking all the way into the past and, and seeing what it was that caused them to get to the place that they were in. And in reality, what's been great for us is that we've been able to see a parallel between Israel and, and the life of the church in a lot of ways. The ways that God is rebuilding, restoring, renewing his people. He's constantly reforming his people, right? And we fall into sin and we confess and we repent of our sin. And God does a new work of renewal in our lives and in our hearts, right? And today we're just going to see the final chapter here in the book of Nehemiah and that it does not end on a cheery note, okay? After the rebuilding of the walls has been completed and the people have settled back into the land, Nehemiah travels back to the king travels back to King Artaxerxes, but when he returns after visiting the king for an unspecified amount of time, when he returns back to Jerusalem, it's, it, he doesn't like what he finds. Everything has gone into disarray. It's kind of like the equivalent of a bunch of teenagers who've been alone in the house while their parents were on vacation, right? What happens when they get back? Everything lies in chaos, right? Everything lies in chaos. The Israelites have compromised once again. They've fallen into compromise. So buckle up. I'm going to hit Nehemiah 13. I'm going to read the entire chapter now because that's what we do here at Substance. Uh, we, uh, we read God's word and then we preach from God's word. So I'm going to read the entire chapter starting with verse 1. Here we go. On the day they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. And while this was taking place, I was not, this is Nehemiah speaking, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Verse 9, then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. 
I also found out that the portions of the Levites, these were the priests, had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pideah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 23, in those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanbalar, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah goes after it. He gets after it, right? Some behavior stuff going on there. He, uh, he wants to make sure that they know he is serious. He uses some physical force to enforce the instruction that he is giving them um, 
from the Lord. Um, I just want to cover that right now in the sense that we would say, I don't know that we would condone the pulling of hair, right? And the beating of people when they are not obeying the word of the Lord. This was a particular moment in redemptive history that we don't see any uh, justification for, but we're just hearing about the passion and the anger that arose in Nehemiah when he saw the people not obeying. And these were some of the tactics he would take. I would suggest we don't do that. Okay. Let me cover that, right? From the very beginning. But this is a brother who is very passionate about the law of God. He's very passionate about seeing that Israel stays true to God's word because he's also acknowledging that this is what got them into the trouble that they're in in the first place, right? And so let's just unpack that a little bit. Let's unpack how the Israelites compromised. The first thing we see is that they defiled the temple in verses four through nine. Tobiah, this was a brother that was the governor of a region called Ammon, And he was opposed to the Israelites when they came back with Nehemiah to build the temple. Not a great guy. And what we read here is that Eliashib, the priest, gave Tobiah one of the temple chambers. Just said, hey, you take it. You need some space. And he, you know, I don't know, he turned it into a man cave, you know, or something like that. And um, which defiled the holy temple, by the way. Um, that was not something that God had given the temple to be used for. So when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, he rightfully loses his cool and he throws Tobiah and I don't know, you know, the 75 inch flat screen, you know, throws it out of the temple, right? And then he cleanses it because it had been defiled. Puts the holy vessels back where they belonged. What is the big deal, right? It's one room in the temple. Who's going to notice? What does it hurt? These are the questions of compromise. Secondly, they neglected to care for their priests in verses 10 through 14. The Levites, the priests, they're from the tribe of Levi. They were not permitted to own land or fields. So the people of Israel had a responsibility to provide them with food, which they were neglecting to do. So what that meant was that the priests had to leave the temple They had to work in the fields in order to eat. In other words, what it really meant was that they weren't leading the Israelites in worship. Nehemiah asks, why is the house of God forsaken? So what he does is he gets the treasurers back into place to make sure that the people are tithing and that the Levites are back in the temple where they belong so that worship resumes. Can't they do both? What's the big deal if the Levites work in the fields? Can't they provide for themselves? These are the questions of compromise. And it keeps getting worse. They also profane the Sabbath, verses 15 through 22. Sabbath laws were being broken, laws that were given to the people for their good by God, right? The people are, are, are doing like a farmer's market on the Sabbath, right? They're inviting all kinds of people who don't keep the Sabbath, the, who were of other nations that didn't follow God's law. They were inviting them in to join them in the selling of fish and produce. If it doesn't sound like a big deal to us, Nehemiah calls it an evil. In verse 18, he reminds them that this is the very thing that their fathers did to bring God's wrath down upon them. So Nehemiah closes the city gates. He doesn't let anything to be sold on the Sabbath. Can't they sell a little produce on Sunday? What's wrong with treading a little wine? 
Well, these are the questions of compromise. And finally, they married foreign women. To be clear, this was not an ethnic issue. Interracial marriages are ordained and celebrated by God. This was a matter of, thank you. This was a matter of, this was a matter of idolatry. Probably should have had a bigger woo than that, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. But it was a matter of idolatry for the people and what it made them susceptible to, right? It was a matter of the teachings of God being passed down to the next generation. When children didn't know the language of the Jewish people, they would not be able to learn the laws of God. And Nehemiah gets violent as he confronts the people. It's kind of shocking for us, probably more shocking for them. But it kind of mimics what Ezra did. If you remember all the way back when we began, Ezra did when he pulled out his hair, he pulled his, out his beard when he learned that there were intermarryings happening when he came back and he discovered what the people had been up to. Nehemiah reminds them of what happened to King Solomon, which is a really sad tale and how his marriages to foreign women were the very thing that tore his heart away from God. But is it really that bad? Are you saying I can't love God just because I'm married to someone who doesn't? No. They're not bad people, Nehemiah. But these are the questions of compromise, right? In the end, Nehemiah makes incredibly hard questionable, violent, but decisive moves to bring Israel back to what they promised, which was to not neglect the house of God. And all he commanded them for their good and their flourishing. Six times Nehemiah asked God to remember him. And imagine how difficult this was for Nehemiah to see all of those years spent rebuilding, renewing, and restoring, and the people slide back into their old sins. How defeated must Nehemiah have felt when he came back and he saw all of this stuff just being undone, being torn at the seams. We've probably have heard, you've probably heard of churches who had faithful pastors for years and years. And when they leave or they retire, or sometimes they pass away, the church falls into compromise. And you see them straying and you see them walking down a path that was quite different to the one that had been built over the years that was filled with faithfulness and fruitfulness. You can imagine how sad that would make you feel, how distressed that would make you feel. This is probably what Nehemiah is experiencing. It's hard to see things go into disrepair. It's hard to see things that we have built that have been good and have been ordained by God. And it's come out of, out of a spirit and a heart of obedience just completely come apart at the seams. When we visit California next week, we're, we're probably going to stop by the house that we left when we moved to Ohio. We, we I don't know why we like doing that. It's always depressing. But um, the, last time, <laughs> the last time we were there, we noticed that they had ripped up all the roses that Melissa had spent all these years planting and cultivating. Either anti-rose, I guess, or something. Um, again, that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's their house, right? But it's painful to see something like that undone. So on even the most base level, we can understand what it's like to work hard as somebody who has been faithful and to see things unraveling 
around us and forget that even in that, God remembers us. God acknowledges our faithfulness. His faithfulness is what is like an umbrella over our faithfulness. But it's painful to see. The church is so susceptible to compromise in these ways. We have to be guarded against compromise. We've got to be guarded against taking a step too far this way or a step too far this way that carries us out from under what God actually has instructed us to do and to be and to continue to become. So that's one of my jobs, right, as pastor here, is to say, hey, guys, let's listen very closely to what God is saying to us every week as we open his word. And let's be faithful to obey those words. And when we don't, now we have confession, repentance, forgiveness, and grace. We have all of that. So that's what I want to do here for the rest of our time as I I want to unpack how the church, how we can guard against compromise. How do we guard against it? How do we not fall into what the Israelites fell into? Well, the first thing is this. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Nehemiah was gone, but they didn't stay close to God's word or his commands. For us, we need to immerse ourselves in God's word and be careful not to, listen to this, pick and choose what to obey and what not to obey. The things that we think are more important, the things that we think are more visible to people out there. If you do that with, say, baking a cake, you're going to end up with something that doesn't taste very good. If you do that with the maintenance of your car like I do, you're going to end up with something that doesn't run very well. If you do that with what you put in your body, you're going to end up with all kinds of medical issues down the road. It's the most basic thing when we think of these more physical properties that, we all, that, that, that we're all engaged in. We know that. We intrinsically know that. We practice that. But it's different when it comes to our spiritual lives. And it leads to compromise. So we immerse ourselves in the words of the Lord, which are full of life, which are full of love, full of conviction, full of good fruit. The Lord will use his word to discipline us. The Lord will use his word to draw us to repentance. Some of you are amazing Christians at 10 a.m. on Sunday in the warehouse. But with Monday comes compromise. Ronnie, brother, I live and let live. I don't judge what others do. Well, that's good. But that's not licensed to do what's right in your own eyes against what it is that God has commanded us to do. Compromise happens when we decide what words of God are most important to us, which comes as the result of not immersing ourselves in those words to know what those words are. So we just start making stuff up. We follow the, we follow the trajectory of the culture. We follow the trajectory of the political party that we've decided to align ourselves with. Cool. 
but does it have anything to do with what God's word says? This requires self-examination and then constant re-immersion into his word, which are full of grace and truth. Man, I'm going to be getting into the sun here in a few days. First day is going to be brutal. I'm going to put all kinds of that stuff all over me. I'm going to wake up the next morning. I'm still going to be red. And you know what? I'm going to put more of that stuff on me the next day and the next day and the next day. And when you see me coming back, I'm going to be, I'm going to be tan. I'm going to be dark. But I'm not going to be red because I continued to reapply. It's the worst analogy I think I've ever come up with in the history of me being a pastor here. It's all I got this week. But the concept plays, right? Re-immerse yourself into God's word because it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the bone. It cuts to the heart of your life. It reminds you that there is a God who created the world and you're not him, but he loves you. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Secondly, form consistent habits of confession and repentance. That was lacking here. Remember, they had had that great celebration. They had had those great gatherings where they confessed and repented. They acknowledged their sin. That stopped. When we compromise, we have an opportunity to confess, to repent, understanding that sin our sin is like mold. It has the same effect. It gets worse as it remains unattended to. And not only that, but it's deceptive so we don't always see it, right? If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We learn that from 1 John. A weak and an ineffective church is a church who doesn't know God's word, and doesn't repent when they break God's word. So my job as your pastor is to call you to holiness. To say, brothers and sisters, I'm with you. I love you. But you need to examine your life closely. What are those attitudes and actions that are clearly in violation of God's commands. Pray and reflect about that today and tomorrow, uh, the rest of your life. Be honest about where you're at and what's been going on in the depths of your heart. Be honest about that. Let the kindness of God draw you to repentance, which he is so eager to give to you. God is eager to forgive you and reorder your life and your loves. Don't let your sin become a slow poison in your life like we see happening here with the Israelites. Be discerning against those subtle compromises that sear your conscience, that make you flippant, that's just, that, that, make you, that make you become a person that just says whatever, that make you become a person that says, I don't care, that make you become a person that says, that's not going to change, so back away. Be guarded against that. 
Be discerning. Watch those things that cause unhealth in your mind and infection in your heart. Go before the Lord. Lay it before him. The cross of Christ is big enough to carry all the biggest, most shameful, most hidden sins in your life. Don't be like the Israelites who were so easily swayed. Form consistent habits of confession and repentance because your words will be received by a kindness unlike anything that you will ever experience from anybody else. And then finally, and this is what I wanted to end on, hold fast to the love of Jesus. Hold fast to the love of Jesus. In the end, the Israelites, they really just forgot about God's love for them, right? They forgot about the Lord's steadfast love. They forgot about how supernaturally patient that God had been with them for so many years. They forgot about how kind he was even to, while they remained in captivity to bring them back, to, to, allow, the, to, to allow the heart of a, of, a, of a pagan Persian king to say, you know what, guys? Go back and rebuild the walls. Go back and rebuild your temple. Have some freedom to worship the way you need to worship. They forgot about God's kindness and love and how he had done that for them. They forgot about his faithfulness to keep his promises to them. They didn't keep themselves in the security and the hope and in the health of his love. I think we forget that. I think we forget to remember the love of Jesus. Because here's the thing. You can obey the words of Jesus. You can confess and repent of your sins. But if you forget his love, then the Christian life becomes a series of technical exercises, right? That lead to cycles of exhaustion and eventually, believe it or not, compromise. The Lord has never stopped rebuilding, restoring, and renewing this church. We see it over and over again through the years that we've been in existence. It's looked different depending on the season for sure. But the end result of this is that we are growing in the love of Jesus. So let's hold fast to his love. Let's not fall into compromise. Let's be a church who is growing in good fruit so that Christ's love is seen every time someone comes into contact with you and our community. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let the love of Christ control you. We are a church that needs to be controlled, moved, motivated, inspired by what? By the love of Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ, by the heartbroken, compassionate nature of Jesus who came to you when there was no hope in your life of salvation until he opened up your heart to see that he has loved you 
And he has died for you because of that love for you so that you may have life in his name. Remember the love of Christ. Hold fast to the love of Jesus. When we celebrate communion on a Sunday morning, this is what we're celebrating. We're celebrating death by love. We're celebrating God sending his son to live a perfect life, to die a wrath-bearing death, to rise on the third day, to ascend then to the Father, to intercede for us, to take our prayers to God. Do you see how the way that relationship works? And we are part of every step in that process to become a redeemed people. So that's why on the second and fourth Sunday, we, we take communion. Because we want to remember the love of God. Why do we got to remember it? Because we forget everything. We're forgetful people. We're forgetful people. So communion reminds us of God's love. We are reminded that we were remembered by God. That he didn't just let us drift off into eternity in our sin but he took drastic measures like Nehemiah to send his son to die a death for our life. So I'm going to pray. I want us to take a minute to reflect on that. Reflect on those things that you need to confess, that you need to repent, so that when you scatter today, you can leave with a sense of forgiveness, not a sense of it, but a reality of it. And as we pray, the ushers are going to come. We have two stations here and a station in the back. And as we finish, we will come up and take the elements together. And then you can get into groups with your family or friends and take of the bread and the cup. We are celebrating the joy that comes with knowing and being remembered by God because he sent his son. If you are not a Christian, we would ask that you just stay put. Because this is something that is for people that have committed their lives and been saved by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. By the way, that can be you even today. And we would ask that you reflect on these words and receive the love of Jesus Christ. That's what we care about here at Substance. We want that to be the substance of your life. Receive the love, receive the forgiveness of Jesus for your sins so that you can know him, he can know you, and you will have life in his name. Let's pray.